Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller. And on today's show, we're going to dissect the makings of a successful relationship between a VC and a biotech startup. Now, we've often had conversations on the show with leaders of new biotechs on their fundraising strategies. And we've had a few conversations with VCs on their investment strategies. But on today's show, we're going to get both perspectives. Ray Therapeutics is a brand new company working in the promising new field of optogenetics. And 4BioCapital is a London-based VC firm that counts business of biotech alumni such as Araris, Code, Sparing Vision, Orchard, and Ceres Therapeutics in its past and present portfolio, and which has planted an early seed in Ray Therapeutics. Joining me in the studio are Ray Therapeutics co-founder and CEO Paul Bresge and 4Bio managing partner Dmitry Dima Kuzmin. Dimitri, uh, Paul, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you guys on the show. Like I said, I'm excited about this because it's going to be a cool conversation, bringing both perspectives together about your your story and the working relationship between uh, the, the two of you. So thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and Dima, I want to jump right into it and, and start with you. Um, so there's there's been a, a, sort of a level set around where we are in the market right now from a, a, a venture capital perspective. Um, for the past, I don't know, every time I say it, I I, I, need, I feel like I need to add a month. For the past 12 months, 16 months, 18 months, there's been all this talk about uh, investor discernment in capital markets of late. Um, so your background uh, strikes me as one that would offer you uh, specific to the biopharma space, an awful lot of discernment ability. I don't know if that's one word or two, if I just made it up, discernment ability, but you've got this PhD in neurochemistry, a doctoral fellowship at Max Planck, postdoc at UCL, MSc in experimental therapeutics, assistant professorship at Yale. In my mind, that all adds up to a super unique uh, ability to be incredibly discerning in your role as a VC. So tell us about that. Tell us about how education and sort of subsequent uh board work has, has informed your investment decisions. Sure. No, thank you for a kind words. I wouldn't definitely say that's unique. There's plenty of extremely talented physician scientists in the industry making investment decisions day and night. So, uh, yeah, and it's a privilege to work in this community. It's a privilege to work with uh, Paul and other CEOs um, in, and with their unique backgrounds. It's also a privilege to work in a community where people are very professional and very, very deep down the rabbit hole. So in terms of like the the learnings, the, the unique perspective that this brings, it all really comes down to just like, how do you make good decisions experience? How do you get experience making bad decisions? Right? And, and, and I think in terms of our unique perspective on bad decisions is committing to the data and committing wrongly, making a wrong call in the data, and then taking a learning from that, and in the future making a better call in the data. Um, I would probably say that there are two things that are quite interesting and in the, in orthogonal. In an environment like this, which I will probably call a bear market, um, you would say that people were, or you know, groups with sufficient levels of discernment ability uh, will be more risk-taking than others. Because when you're a generalist investor, when everything looks cool, it looks cool. When everything looks crap, it looks crap. 
Mm. Uh, And so naturally, there is a fair amount of uh, just generalist thinking and crowd type behavior. Whereas when you are actually paying attention to the data and exclusively to the data and the people you're working with, the fact that the weather's changed doesn't mean that the data's changed. And so you would still be taking risk in an environment which looks very hostile to people. So you will often find that people with sufficient depth of technical background and enough battle scars are still taking risk. We are still taking risk. And other investors of our phenotype are still taking risk in today's environment. Um, So you would say we are more risk-taking quite unexpectedly than our peers. And then the second learning, I would say, is one has to learn to live with technical and clinical uncertainty. What I often say in the market, especially over the past 18 to 24 months, which has been quite a beating for the gene therapy subsector, which I come from by background as an academic, mm-hmm. and then you know, I've invested into heavily, including Ray, um, gene therapy had some setbacks. We can be very open about that. AV had setbacks, lentiviruses had setbacks, there have been commercial setbacks, and so on and so forth. At the same time, it still remains the single safest drug modality by numbers we've ever had. And it also remains quite an outstandingly commercially successful modality uh, in between several approved drugs now. So in this current environment, you have to be uh, conscious of what is real and what is sentiment and be prepared that in any new modality you're investing in, there is inherent risk and you cannot magic it out in any way. So you have to diversify and pay attention. So these, I think, are the two comforts. One derives from having a lot of deep technical background and battle scars. Yeah. Yes, ability to take risk and ability to live with long-term uncertainty. Do you want a quick follow up on that? And I, you know, the, you use the word data several times, which is uh, you know, completely understandable. Uh, and you talked about sort, you know, more more sort of generalist uh, investors in in life sciences and, and more specifically biopharma. Do you find in your in your role now? Um, do you find in your position at uh, at at Four Bio that uh, potential uh, sponsors, potential you know, th- those those seeking funds? Um, fall into uh, maybe fall into a, a data ready camp versus sort of a, a premise, uh, you know, try, trying to sell you on the premise sort of camp. Like, do, do you do you see that? Uh, because, you know, it occurs to me that if I'm seeking funding and I have supreme confidence in my data, I may look to you know one faction or element of of the VC crowd. Uh, if I'm seeking funding and and perhaps my data is not where it should be, but I think I have a really cool premise. I may look for a more naive segment of, of that crowd. What are your What are your thoughts there? What do you see? I wouldn't say naive. I wouldn't mm-hmm. call any participant in the market naive. Um, market tends to be quite a rational place uh, with just a lot of people with different theses. And some theses might work better in a bear market. Some theses might work better in the bull market. Um, I do believe that data first thesis works better in a bear market or in a flat market. In a bull market, definitely a platform premise thesis has worked incredibly well for many tech bio funds, many tech funds, and for many biotech funds. It's perfectly fine. Uh, so I think these things are in balance. 
And you're exactly right that there are market participants that look to collaborate with other market participants. That's a rational decision for them. Hmm. Um, However, I would say that the amount of liquidity in the market does influence what you can sell. So definitely it is easier to sell a dream or promising data, early stage data in a bull market. And that's what you should be selling in that market. In the bear market, you can only sell, in my opinion, two things. One, a really robust data set. Two, a very early idea. Yeah. Or with very little original data. Um, Because an early stage idea will always be cheap, but there will always be investors willing to take a risk on that. And then a robust, mature data set is what people need. Everything in between right now is crossing a value death. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right, Paul, I want to, I want to turn to you. Uh, you know, I, in my intro, I painted this picture of, of Dima as having this, you know, in, incredible kind of dyed in the wool academic pedigree that no one would be able to pull the wool over his eyes and get his company to release a, a penny of funding uh, without, without good data and good science, because he's, he's so credentialed uh, not to take anything away from you, but you, on the other hand, your background doesn't look like you were born to be a, a bio uh, pharmaceutical <laughs> executive, right? You, uh, you didn't come out of school with these etched in biopharma credentials. Uh, your business experience uh, spans leadership of several spaces, pharma contract manufacturing company and in industrial tool distributor, logistics service provider, uh, and a couple of early stage biotechs as well. But there's a, you know, when I look at that, I, I say, well, there's a bit to unpack, you know, and that starts with what uh, motivated the move away from some of these other industrial leadership experiences and into biotech with J-Site and, and now Ray Therapeutics. Sure. Um, I mean, the the move was, uh, was very personal. Um, in 2010, my middle daughter, uh, her name is Tamar, uh, she had just turned 15 and was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa and told by the chief ophthalmologist at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital that she was going blind and that there was nothing that could be done to help her. Um, I, um, I I didn't realize until much later on in my life how helpful this was, but my father was actually the founder of the Cana- a Canadian division of a generic pharmaceutical company. Hmm. So I grew up in, you know, very much in that environment. And then I started my career in contract manufacturing for the generic, you know, pharma world. Um, I had a very entrepreneurial spirit. So I left that and I went up, you know, into various other things, you know, some of which you've mentioned. Um, but again, in 2010, um, you know, life took me right back into the space um, out of necessity. Um, I had, um, you know, the very good fortune of having uh, personal resources to be able to step out of everything that I was doing to look for and get involved in finding a cure for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, amazing contacts in in the pharma world that were very helpful in, um, you know, selecting the program. Uh, doing due diligence, selecting the program that I got involved in. In 2011, um, I identified some very promising science at a University of California, Irvine. It was a husband and wife team, and they had, you know, what I thought and what my due diligence team thought was incredible uh, data, uh, proof of concept data um, for um, a cell therapy for slowing down the progression of uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So. I somehow 
you know, convinced them to allow me to get involved. So I got involved in that program really from inception before JSAP was even formed and ended up staying with that program for a decade, uh, all the way through what is now, um, you know, embarking on a phase three program and a partnership with Santan Pharmaceuticals. So in 2020, we did a deal with Santan. I stayed on until, you know, the end of the year. And then in 2001, I co-founded Ray um, with the original founders of the RetroSense program, which was the first optogenetics uh, program to go into clinic. And the reason why I was so excited to get into Ray is that it really rounded out my mission. So what we know from the data, and this is public from JSITE, is that the therapy seems to work best in patients that are early on in the disease to uh, slow the progression of the disease. But to some extent, patients that are blind or nearly blind are, are often left behind. Many of the you know, very exciting approaches in gene therapy and in cell therapy are target to, targeted to slowing down progression, but not really restoring vision. So what I, I absolutely loved about the complement between Ray and JSITE was it addresses all patients with RP and independent of the genetic mutation. So you know, retinitis pigmentosa um, you know, has potentially 100 or maybe even more mutations. Uh, both therapies on the on the JSITE side and on Ray, it's agnostic to the genetic mutation. So um, it was a very long-winded uh, answer to your question of you know how I made the transition from other industries into um, you know into biotech, but it is it's very specific to this very personal mission that I have not only for you know my own daughter, but for for now you know all RP patients and patients with blinding diseases in general. Yeah, no, it's uh, that long-winded is good. That's a it's a it's a great complete response. And I, so I'm I'm curious about. I'm not even sure how to frame the question up, but I'm curious about the tran. I guess the translation of your inspiration to sure. execution. Now I understand that you had the resources. You know, some you were fortunate to have some resources to be able to stop what you were doing at that moment in time and and devote uh, energy to uh, building out some semblance of an organization that would work on a cure to a disease that was affecting your family. Um, the inspiration part isn't lost on me. I've had plenty of conversations with folks who were, you know, inspired to, to do something. Um, but I'm wondering what sort of apprehension you might've, you might've felt sure you looked around, you said, I've got some resources, I've got some connections, but I sure don't have um, uh, at that time anyway, uh, you know, eight years worth of study uh, into the, into the disease. Um, you know, what was there any level of, of apprehension around dropping everything and and building an organization? No, I mean, not not. I, there, there's nothing you know I wouldn't do for my child, and it was you know very you know motivated and still is you know by her. I mean, she she's an inspiration to me. So, for example, um, you know, when she was diagnosed, she I think as I mentioned, she just turned fifteen. Uh, the ophthalmologist told her she should consider what she studies and what she, what career she pursues in life. And, um, based, you know, she, on, based on her, based on, on the fact that she was losing her vision. And she recently graduated, um, with a master's degree from Tufts University in fine arts. And she does mm -hmm. a lot of visual arts and uh, now she's teaching at Tufts. She's teaching the intersection between uh, writing and art. So she's she's an absolute inspiration. And 
Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I, once I got involved and once I was satisfied that um, the, the therapy, you know, had a lot of promise, there, there was no apprehension. There was just this absolute drive. How do we get this to patients? And that translates now to Ray. It's the same thing. I mean, we're, we're so focused on how do we get this to clinic and, um, you know, our excitement around what we anticipate uh, the patient's improvement will be once they're treated with our with our therapy. So, um, you know, a- apprehension isn't even a word that I I think about. I'm I'm a a, a true believer, and uh, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to surround myself with you know very good people with um, with expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dima, one of them, you know, to to complement you know my my mission and and you know maybe the education specific education uh, or experience that that I haven't had in you know these field cell therapy and al gene therapy um you know I was very fortunate to be um awarded a lot of money from the state of California CERM uh, at J site and now at at uh, Ray as well mm-hmm. so um you know with 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 the the patients in mind it, it's amazing you know how how much drive we can have yeah, that's that's an outstanding story, and I wish I wish your daughter well. I'm gonna look her up. I want to see some of her work. You know, and yeah, she's it's super intrigued. Yeah, she actually did a TED talk recently. So if you can find that, it's uh, very very cool. She's an amazing young woman. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. Um, in, in fact, uh, if if we had more time, I'd pull it up right now to share with the audience. But you can, <laughs> you can you can go Google that yourself. Um, Dima Dima, back to you. So I I, I you know I want to get your perspective on first the first blush uh, re- meeting with 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 Ray and Paul, right? So along comes Paul, um, and, and you you know you you tell me where the story kind of starts and in, in the continuum of of where Paul was on the maturity you know uh, continuum. But he's got an inspirational story. He's got a lot of motivation. He's got a diverse background. He's founded this uh, company. Uh, just Ray a little bit over a year ago, obviously some experience uh, with Jay site leading up to that. He's looking for capital. Um, He's got a pretty complex pipeline in optogenetics. You lead the seed seed round. So what, I guess, what what sort of discernment analysis uh, examination uh, went into that and, and and why, why, why'd you, why'd you lead a seed round? Sure. So a lot of questions, a lot of questions wrapped into one. there. Yeah. So a couple of couple of things here. So first and foremost, Ray is a second generation company. So it's the second time this founding academic, Dr. Joao Pan, is attempting to bring a an opportunity gene therapy in the clinic. And we were one of the VCs in the first attempt. And that company called Retrosense was acquired by Allergan in 2016. Mm-hmm. So this has been a very successful investment for us. So one of the uh, uh, kind of immediate reasons we all got together in this, so Sean Ainsworth, the chairman of Ray and the former CEO of Retrosense, Paul and I, uh, was because it's kind of, uh, in a way, was getting the old crew get back together with uh, you know, the, the excellent addition of Paul. Um, the second reason is I myself have a background in optogenetics. As, as an academic. And so I've definitely been very interested in the space for now, close to 15 years. Uh, so uh, definitely tracking more or less everything's happening there. Uh, so uh, that was another strong reason why we pounced on the opportunity to do this quite quickly. 
Um, and then in terms of discernment and analysis, one thing that is actually, and I know it's very important and definitely very inspirational, but to me, a CEO with a personal story is always a risk, 100%. Sure, yeah. Because this means that you know we, as a venture fund, we're not a charity. We are a venture fund. We have to uh, make a return on investment for our limited partners. And this is the way how we can bring therapies back to patients. So uh, we have to be certain that the person at the helm is aligned with that mission and he will make the right business decisions, often hard business decisions, to make sure that we get there. Um, and I've seen these stories before. There are other companies in the gene therapy space and outside the gene therapy space that's been um, built by parents of children can, you know, uh, carrying the, the, the disease. And um, unfortunately, not all of them have been successful, as we all know. So the one of the there were two key questions for us in our diligence. One, what is the improvement since the first generation? How far has the field moved on? And what can we count on? And we believe that the improvement has been phenomenal in that we are basically now capable of solving every single major limitation that the first generation had in this one product. And most importantly, with all first generation of the genetic therapies, they're not sensitive enough. They're less sensitive than the human options. And because of this, all of these patients needed vision magnification goggles to actually see pretty much anything. So it's not a major improvement over a retinal prosthesis. So you still have to have a bulky apparatus and, and so on and forth. Whereas we hope that race technology will be able to do completely do away with that and uh, create new vision or restore vision back to low street level lighting level, which would be outstanding and completely life-changing for these patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second question for us was the management team. So making sure that uh, Paul, with his background of JSI, as well as his uh, exposure to patient organizations, his personal story, and the people who's getting around him are the best possible people to take this forward. And uh, as the outcome of our diligence, the answer to that was yes, we firmly believe in this management team and we feel blessed working with them every day. Nice. Um, Paul, Dima, Dima sort of alluded to or indicated uh, based on for bios uh, history in this space that, th that they knew what questions to ask. Sure. Um, to, to sort of de determine how far things have, have come along. Uh, did you know what questions would, would be asked? I mean, did you, uh, and did you feel prepared kind of going in? Um, yeah, I, think, I think, you know, very much so because you know, to a large extent, I had those same questions myself. So, you know, it was very important after leaving J site um, that whatever it was, I knew I would continue my mission, you know, for patients with blinding diseases, but, yeah. Um, I, I did an extensive amount of due diligence that I was hanging my head in, in the right place. Um, so the, the questions that Forbio asked of the scientists and, um, you know, the examination of the data um, uh, was very much the, a similar process to, you know, to what I had gone through. 
So I, th I think we were, you know, very well prepared, um, you know, to answer for bio's questions. Um, you know, we we were we we're very fortunate with that seed round. Um, we were able to, to, you know, to to raise, you know, really um, as much money as we we wanted to for that round. Um, it was a an absolute no brainer, you know, for me. Um, once I had an introduction to Dima that, you know, for bio was absolutely, you know, the, the right investor for us. Um, firstly, there was, um, you know, th there was the, the right chemistry and alignment. And that's, you know, a very important consideration um, when you think about board composition. And also, you know, as Dima alluded to his, you know, very, um, unique expertise in optogenetics um I, I knew right away that that he would be a, a very you know mu very much of a value-added board member yeah. so I, I think the the diligence process it was extensive you know no no doubt but i i felt like you know again we were well prepared for it and it it helped validate all the conclusions that i had come to myself through my own due diligence process before actually um, you know, getting involved in the program and taking on the CEO position. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at, at face value, the fact that you're an optogenetics company and that there's a, this guy who works for a, a VC, uh, you know, ma manages a VC who who also happens to be an expert yeah. in optogenetics. Yeah, it feels like a no-brainer. But you mentioned something else, Paul, in your response just now that I want to, you know, probably regretfully try to dig into. And that's the... <laughs> I say regretfully because it's one of those fuzzy things that's hard to, you know, hard to wrap your arms around. Uh, but the cultural match thing, you know, the yeah. the, the, the chemistry. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I hear that all the time when I talk with uh, VCs and, about, about what they're looking for. And when I talk with uh, biopharma execs about their relationships with, with VCs or, you know, any partner, outsourcing partners, for instance. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, you know, it's a difficult question. It's an easy question to ask, but a difficult one to answer. But how do you sort of crystallize or characterize, I guess, what a good, and I'm throwing this out to both of you, Dima and, and Paul. Uh, how do you, how do you characterize what a good, a good cultural match looks like in a relationship like this? There's an exchange, you know, there's a, there, there's expectations, there's pressure, there's, what does it, what does it look like? How do you characterize it? Dima. Huh, Dima, I'll let you go. First of all, I formulate <laughs> no, my no. answer because that is, it, it is a, you know, there's a, sure. a lot in that question. Uh, so, you know, to me, this is, um, there are several relationships in one there, right? There is a relationship of, uh, there, there's a friendship and a business relationship. And in a way, a bit of a of a doctor patient relationship, if if you know what I mean. So so there needs to be rapport at the core of things, and most importantly, neither side should be seeking to create anxiety. I think that you know number one rookie board member mistake is pressuring the CEO and saying, "Tell me this. So why is this not working? Or like, what's our response?" So that the CEO gets anxious. I do not, I know many people, I do not know a single individual who thinks better when they're anxious. Mm. Um, and uh, I, th I think that is, um, um, you know, needs to be taken out of the equation. So it needs to be a relationship of trust um, and a helpful environment. That needs to be a relationship of transparency. So there are several, there are issues arising on all sides. 
right? There is an issue uh, that there might be a day that when a board decides the CEO has to go. And, you know, the board member has to be able in a calm manner communicate why and make it a non-threatening environment and show how it's going to be better for everybody. And at the same time, there might be a day where the drug fails in the clinic and the COS to come to the board and say, look, we've done everything we could. This failed. The biology gave us an answer. Now we need to take steps to either wind down the company or repurpose our drugs or do something else. So unless there is um, deep trust, transparency, and a really helpful environment, all of this ends in tears and acrimony. And it's the worst possible way in, this, in, in which this can end. So for me, the key things, report, transparency, and willingness to, to help and communicate on both sides. Mm-hmm. Paul, anything to anything? Yeah, to no, I think it's, uh, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And it made me think of, um, you know, the very early on in the, in, in after for bio made the investment, you know, as there are always, um, the things that, that come up that, you know, challenges we don't anticipate one came up, you know, pretty shortly after for bio invested. And I, I sent an email out to the board and it was, it was a challenging situation. And I got a, an email back from Dima within like, you know, one or two minutes. And he said, call me. And I was like, you know, taking deep breaths to literally, you know, it was the first time we were interacting in, in a challenging environment or, 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 or not challenging environment, over a challenging issue. And I, you know, so I called him, you know, after making sure that I, you know, had, had those deep breaths that I needed. And the first thing he said was, you know, how can I help? And um, that really spoke volumes and it, um, you know, it, it, it validated, to use that word again, um, you know, the, the fact that that we had, you know, really made the right decision um, at Ray by, you know, by bringing in the right investor. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. Dima strikes me as the kind of guy who uh, stands ready to help and not only ready to help, but capable of helping any guy who can cut through my rambling, muddy questions and break it down into a concerted kind of step-by-step response. Like I, I, I got to give you a lot of credit, Dima. You're doing a great job interpreting this, uh, the simple-minded Pennsylvania guys line of questioning. Excellent job. Well, you know, man, as a, as a management partner of a VC fund, the main thing I'm actually doing is explaining gene therapy to um, Harvard business majors who make endowment investment decisions. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the best possible time I can have. A lot of them are uh, coal miners or, or something else. So that there's a lot of explaining going on over there, trying to trust me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, and, 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 you know, that kind of leads me to another uh, another couple of questions around optogenetics. And I'm, 
you know, I'm, I'm glad that I can ask these questions of, of both of you, given your, your background, Dima. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I, it, it occurs to me as we talked about discernment from the outset, uh, the potential, the potential of the science, having some insight into the potential of the science uh, has, has got to be helpful, you know, when you're making investment decisions. So, um, and you, and you studied that. So tell me, and, and I'll throw this out to this question out to both of you as well. Tell me a bit more about that science. Tell me a little bit more about like what, what, what the premise is here and why it's something worth putting money down on. Well, maybe I'll start because it'll be more simple and then Dima can build on that. Um, so, I mean, you know, at, at, at the most basic level, biologists have known for, you know, decades already that uh, certain microbes move to and away from light. Um, and this ability is driven by certain channel proteins that sit, um, you know, on the surface of these microbes. And with uh, modern molecular, uh, you know, engineering, scientists have been able to um, really engineer these proteins and then use gene therapy to express them in certain cells, you know, of, of the body. So, um, you know, we're targeting that expression in the retinal ganglion cells. And, um, you know, because our protein is, you know, so light sensitive, so much more light sensitive than anything else that's out there. Um, you know, we, we think that there's a, a lot of promise uh, for this to really become a very, you know, meaningful therapy to patients where they'll have, you know, formed and, and useful vision. Uh, so that, that, that's the most basic answer, but uh, Dima, I'll let you build on top of that. Um, I mean, it's pretty comprehensive. Uh, probably two or three things to mention are, um, Importantly, this technology is potentially applicable to both the diseases where the, the vision disappears over time because of a genetic defect, and then also to the conditions that pretty closely mirror the biology of those, but arise with age. So we're talking retinitis pigmentosa and liver congenital amaurosis type 2 on, on one side, and then dry age-related macular degeneration and geographic atrophy on the other side. Mm -hmm. It remains to be confirmed uh, how much the approach is applicable to either one, because we do not have a clinical read yet, mm -hmm. uh, as you know, but uh, we're definitely excited by the promise of the technology more broadly, not only in the very rare genetic conditions. Um, and then uh, secondly, I think um, what is quite interesting and what, I feel very good about Ray because of is a lot of this uh, area and uh, ophthalmology in general uh, is a very challenging area to do clinical trials in because these diseases are slowly progressive in most cases. The degeneration is very slow and there's a number of publicly traded gene therapy companies in the eye of proprietary assets or have partnered assets with big pharma are really struggling because of that, because it just takes years or maybe even decades to prove that your drug is actually efficacious in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Whereas race technology is binary. You put it in in a good way, right? It's binary in a good way. You put it in, and if it works, it creates vision or recreates vision. There is no signal, and now there is a signal. 
you're not mm-hmm. waiting for anything to prevent degeneration over the next five years. And because of this, this may, makes for a much cleaner clinical trial design. And, and on top of this, we have an absolute genius in Dr. Peter Francis, who's recently joined as the CSO and chief medical officer, who's prior to Ray has been CSO for G-Molecular Therapeutics and prior to that CMO of uh, Retrosense. And uh, he has... Um, uh, definitely as excited as we are at, uh, about the technology and about its relatively rapid path to the proof of concept in the clinic. Dima, that uh, y- your your response uh, elicited a, a few questions uh, in in my mind that I want to run by you uh, from a, a, a you know a funder standpoint. When you're analyzing the fundability of a potential client. Um, you know, Ray, Ray or otherwise, when you're analyzing the fundability, is that, is it, there, there I go. I might've made up another word. Is fundability a word? If it, if it isn't, I just made, I just made it a word. Um, clinical trials, you know, one thing, I, you know, what's it going to be like getting through clinical trials? Are we, are we possibly going to get through clinical trials? That's got to be, you know, one of the things top of mind. Market size, right? What's patient population look like? What does this look like down the road if it, if it hits? Um, jockeys, right? We talk on the show all the time about, you you know, you bet on the jockeys, not the horse. So who's leading the company? What experience do they have? What's, what's you know, what's their motivation? What are some other maybe not so obvious markers of a fundable company to a, to a, a guy in your business? Well, I mean, there's one pretty obvious one that you haven't mentioned, which is intellectual property, mm. uh, which is never clean, despite what every, every startup says. Sure. And and there is a lot of work that goes into that. And then uh, lastly, an acquirer. Uh, personally, I am not a big believer in NASDAQ as an exit mechanism for biotechs. It works well in, a, in good times. It is as we can see, doesn't really work in bad times. Um, so in an ideal world, a big pharma acquires a product. Why does a big pharma acquire a product? Acquires a product because it wants to open a completely new market for itself or because it feels that its existing market share is threatened or it can threaten a competitor's market share with a new product. These are pretty much the three reasons why they'd buy anything. So there are certain uh, areas right now in drug development, like, say, functional neurology or pain or um, often women's health or um, muscle-wasting diseases and others which are really struggling with acquirers. And ophthalmology, sadly, is rapidly joining the club because there are several big farms that are pulling out from the space. And then there are also several other farms who have very large products on the market, very successful products, but they're not, don't appear to be defending the market share in any way in terms of ongoing M&A or partnering. So thinking about this, this is a very important question for us. Who buys this in the end? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we know the answer for Ray, um, but uh, when we consider new investments, that is a very, very important aspect. Yeah. Interesting. Ray, was that part of the like? I'm sorry, Ray. I'm re- Paul. I'm referring to you as your as your company. Okay. Uh, when you uh, when you went out onto the investment uh, seeking trail, how much of that were you and your team your team aware of? You know, in terms of like, what are they looking for to determine fundability? 
Uh, no, I think we were we're very much aligned in you know how we see the best opportunity um, you know for the company and uh, the best way for this to get to the patients. Um, I you know I agree with everything that that Dima said. So we you know we definitely had those conversations as part of the due diligence process you know from for bio and again it it spoke to the alignment uh, between the you know the, the the rest of the board and and myself as as Dima mentioned um, you know. Uh, Peter Francis is, you know, I think he's really the world expert in in optogenetics. He's a uh, clinician, um, you know, ophthalmologist, um, PhD scientist. Uh, Sean Ainsworth, who's our chairman and was the founder, as we mentioned, of of Retrosense. Um, you know, we were all very, very much aligned with um, w- with the same vision that Forbio has uh, for a, and we we've been very fortunate. I mean, the company. Has been, you know, around since early uh, 2021. Obviously, there was a, you know, a, a certain time that it took just to to get ourselves, you know, set up. And we've already had interest from uh, several pharma companies. Uh, optogenetics is is a very very exciting part. I would say it's the most exciting. Of course, I'm biased, but still, uh, I, I would confidently say it's the most exciting. Uh, area of ophthalmology today for all of the reasons that I think, you know, Dima has, has described for the, the potential for the therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, D- Dima, back to you real quick. I, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the alignment of your, your background and what's going on at Ray and what Ray's working on. And I'm wondering if there's uh, you know, if you're seeing any trends in the investment space, around and this is you know good good fodder for our audience of new and emerging biopharma leaders are there any trends around sort of real niche specialization in terms of um vc vc firms uh are are we heading in a direction where uh biopharmaceutical funding mechanisms are getting more specialized kind of moving away from generalization you know hey we're in the life sciences well now maybe we're specific to atmps or specific to you know cell and gene therapies are you seeing any trends in that direction or is that uh just just me reaching well we're quite biased because we're i think so we're definitely the first fund in the world to be purely specific to atmps and emerging modalities so the the, the best thing known about the the best known thing about for bio is that we don't do small molecules and we don't do antibodies. So we're like uh, basically third generation only. Although we have quite broad remit across that, so we invest across gene therapy and gene editing, cell therapy, everything RNA, all targeted therapies and microbiomes. So you no know, things as diverse as protax and AV gene therapies, uh, but no alceric modulators, inhibitors, reactivators, and no naked MABs or enzyme replacement therapies. Why? Because, um, you just, you, because you just love the you love the risk? You just embrace that risk so much? No, yeah. all of us in the team come from this area. Uh, so we're all, we're technology specialists. And this is how the firm has been built originally. And this is, this is our DNA. This is also how we compete. We are a specialist fund. So think about us as a pilot boat. We take the early risk. We build companies and we seed companies. And we also uh, occasionally do Series A. Mm-hmm. And um, it is our job to underwrite early stage technological risk like in Ray and make it more palatable to the larger, perhaps more generalist funds 
uh, as we seek the next financing because we don't have the resources to do a whole-blown you know, Series A on our own. Um, unlike some of our venture creation peers who are much larger in the States who can carry a company till Series B pretty well. So yeah. um, that's um, how we operate. And the advantage is that now we've been doing this for over seven years. And it's um, since we've been doing this basically since before the first commercial approval of a modern ATMP. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the amount of expertise that we've been able to build just in these very short seven years is uh, quite beneficial for what we're doing uh, now. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I'm not saying that there, are, you know, there is no space for generalist funds. There's lots of space for generalist funds. Moreover, I'm really excited um, to see tech funds grow tech bio appendages and enter our space. I'm a Kaufman fellow and I hang out a lot with tech funds. And uh, it's really great to see all my tech peers to go and start looking at our stuff and, and uh, really contemplate investments in the space. The more dollars our space can attract, the better. Because, uh, well, I say every day, I love fundraising. Yeah. Everybody hates fundraising. I love fundraising. I love going to endowments. I love going to asset managers and talking about genetic disease and cancer and how we're revolutionizing treatment with these therapies. Why? Because the problem we're facing, the problem of chronic disease that you know I want to fix, I want to, I want to fix human beings, basically. I want to I fund everything that can repair human bodies. Mm -hmm. And this problem is bigger than you, bigger than Paul, bigger than me, bigger than all of us together. And unless we learn how to fix human bodies, all of our healthcare systems are going to disintegrate because we cannot afford them anymore. Yeah. Nowhere in the world we can afford modern treatment to the rapid aging population with band-aids which is what we have now. Right. So the more people we can get involved in this broad church, the better. Tech investors, fabulous. Um, all sorts of generalist investors, great. But this means that there is a niche or a pretty large playing field for specialist investors who can underwrite specific risks in this arena and make it more palatable to those who are coming in at the later stage. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the infusion of tech, uh, is that, is that, do you see that as sort of as a result of the adoption of the computational biology concept, machine learning, uh, in, in, in bio, specifically in biopharma? That definitely had a part. Also, the largest tech funds have so much money that they needed to open frontier markets for themselves because they're oversaturated. Um, the same goes true for, uh, private equity groups. If you see there's a fascinating trend, I wrote an op-ed about this earlier in the year, uh, that European venture funds in life science are getting acquired, the funds mm. themselves, by large private equity groups. Now, wow. the top of Carlisle and Apollo and EQT and so on. Several very well-known names like Abengworth and LSP have been taken out this year. Um, this is because very large, very cash-rich groups want to open new markets for themselves, and biotech venture is an exciting new market for them. Uh, so I think that is uh, what also drives the, uh, the interest. And then thirdly, I think there is a certain drive from the grassroots, because now there are more venture capitalists in the world than just biotech venture capitalists. And you know, if you're an academic seeking funding, you might not have a biotech VC buddy, but you might have a tech VC buddy 
you go to them and say, hey, that's really cool. And you do all those complex things, satellites and deep sea cables and chemistry. And well, why don't you do my stuff? Yeah. And they, they go and thinking like, okay, why don't you I do your stuff? I'll bet on the jockey, you know what you're doing. Um, and so I think it also goes organically like this. Yeah, very interesting. Paul, back to you. And I, I, I'm looking at the clock here and realizing we're running short on time. So just a couple more. If you guys get our game, I'll, I'll ask you a couple more. Absolutely. Yeah, Paul, you. Uh, I saw on the news that you guys just signed a, not not too long ago signed a, a deal with Forge Biologics uh, over mm-hmm. in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio, which is uh, T- Tim Miller has been a guest on on my show. Columbus is just a few. Columbus is just a few hours from where I sit right now, and uh, it's a, it's a few hours that my wife frequently makes me drive because the shopping there is incredible. You know, when mm-hmm. you live in a small town in Pennsylvania, Columbus is a, a retail destination, um, but really really cool company, growing growing very quickly. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, about that, about that deal. Why'd you choose Forge? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, particularly because, um, you know, CMC has become the valley of death in, you know, in, in regen medicine. So choosing the right CDMO partner is probably the most critical, uh, decision, um, you know, that, that, that a company can make. Uh, so we did a very extensive due diligence. We brought in outside consultants and, you know, identified a number of appropriate CDMOs and, um, you know, Forge, they they were just, they set themselves apart from, from everybody else. Firstly, they're extremely specialized in AAV uh, gene therapy. Um, you know, very impressed with Tim. And then David Dismuke, who's their CTO, um, you know, we... Well, the RetroSense team worked with him previously. Really brilliant guy. Lots of familiarity with the optogenetic space, and um, I have to say, it was it was really the, the best decision we we could have made. Um, you know, obviously, as a as a startup, uh, things are fluid, and uh, one of the important um, components, you know, of the working relation with a CDMO is flexibility. And, um, you know, they, they are very much, you know, on the ball, there's a very strong relationship between, you know, themselves and the management team. So Peter Francis, you know, works with them closely, Jenny Holt, who's all SVP of uh, project uh, management, she works with them very closely. So yeah, fantastic company. Yeah, good deal. Yeah. What's the uh, what's what's next on the agenda as far as, um, you know, what that relationship uh, will lead to? What's where, where are you on the on the clinical journey? Kind of give us an update on on where Ray sits right now and what the next steps are. So, yeah, as I said, you know, earlier, we're, um, you know, we're anxious to get into into clinic as, as quickly as possible. And of course, CMC is a critical part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of um, you know next steps for for fundraising, we're uh, just embarking on a Series A now, and uh, you know feel quite optimistic about that. Um, you know, given of course the you know the, the fact that optogenetics itself is you know very much on the radar, and you know I, I think our management team will be very well received. I think our our data um, you know really sets us apart from all of the other players in the field. Uh, so I'm I'm very very excited about you know the the next few months and in particular the next you know couple of years uh, for a when we actually get to see uh, patients uh, or when the patients get to see I should say more specifically. Yeah, um, just an, another real quick question on that series A. As you kind of go out on that trail and 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 look for that that funding, does it? Um, I guess 
is it a feather in your cap to 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 go out there with four bios backing kind of in the in in the rearview mirror uh, it's critical yeah absolutely i mean um you know four bio is you know very well respected uh in the space they're, they're very well known to all of the series a investors that we've targeted and um you know having dima on the board and having the the validation from um you know uh, dima and for bio um who have so much expertise in the optogenetic space it um you know it's it's very much of a of a value add uh in in the series a process nice well listen i uh, i don't thank, know thank god do you can see oh. how i blush in a podcast Yes, I did. I did. So we, uh, yeah, for those of you listening to the podcast, uh, who aren't aware, you can, you can go to our YouTube channel. You can go to bioprocessonline.com and you can watch the videos of these, these podcasts. And Dima's not kidding. He did. He kind of, he hung his head a little bit with a, with a smile and he he blushed as Paul was just, just speaking. So it's, uh, it's the truth. It was clearly genuine, clearly genuine. Um, I don't know for sure that the questions that I asked uh, were were all the right ones for the benefit of our listeners. I do know that they were the right ones for me to ask because I learned, I learned a ton, like this inside look at the relationship uh, between, you know, investment seeker and an, an investor um, was super valuable to me. Uh, again, I'm, you know, maybe a little, little bit more wet behind the ears than our average listener, but I can tell you that I learned a lot and it was time well spent for me. I hope you guys feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I learned a lot today. So uh, it was uh, you know, very, very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dima. Thank you. That's for BioCapitals, Dr. Dima Kuzman, Ray Therapeutics co-founder and CEO, Paul Bresge, and I'm Matt Piller. This is the business of biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new biopharma innovation at its virtual biotech accelerator at Cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com and sign up for my newsletter while you're there. If you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe. Leave us a review and some feedback. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>